for women. Um, but take those, one of those baby bottles, fill it full of change, $100 bills, checks that are good, whatever. Um, and if you don't want to mess with real money, there's a code on their QR code. You can scan that with your smartphone and pay online uh, and uh, be part of that ministry. That is their major fundraiser that funds their ministry for the year. Also, there's a code there if you'd like to volunteer to be a part of that ministry. Um, and then one other announcement I've been talking about for several weeks uh, that I volunteered us to re-roof the uh, chapel and the dorms at the campground, Salmon Falls Bible Campgrounds for Grace International, and where youth camps take place in July, and the roofs are in desperate need, and uh, a contractor gave a bid just shy of $100,000, and since the camp hasn't been having renters for the last, they were shut down for COVID, and then the roof leaked so bad that that our superintendent didn't want to rent it to anybody and have rain come down on their heads. So um, I volunteered that we would go and take care of putting it on. Um, and so on the week of my plan is I'm praying for no rain, mild cloud cover, July or June the 5th through, the, through that week. There's only 100 square of surface plus the bridge cap and the starter row and um, all of that. So if, if you're able to help us during that week, mark your calendar, block that time out, and uh, pray for mild, dry weather. Amen? Amen? Thank you. Genesis, we began a series of lessons a few weeks ago in the very first book of the Bible, in the beginning. We continue today as Moses is still uh, giving an account of the primeval history uh, that from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11, and then he will focus on, on Abraham and his family. Uh, first six days, God created the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. We talked about the Sabbath last week. God rested, not that he was done working, but he was done with the creation. And, uh, and then we talked about the fact that Jesus became our Sabbath when he rose from the grave. And, and he invites all of us who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest. And uh, he is our rest. He is our Sabbath. Today we are in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, as we begin another section in Moses' thinking. And he starts out, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. These are the generations of the heavens. That's a marker for Moses as he's writing this narrative that there's a, a new person of interest or there's a new subject of interest. It happens 11 times in the, the book of uh, Genesis where he starts, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth. And he gives a brief history of that period of time. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, 
and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist, or in the sidebar over here on my ESV Bible, it says spring, and a mist or spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. First thing I want to point out as Moses starts this section of his narrative is this, the difference between the name that he uses for God in chapter 1 and the name he uses for God in chapter 2. In chapter 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the Hebrew it is, In the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Thirty-five times in chapter 1 we read Elohim, God. It's all about God. You want to understand it's all about God and what God has done what God is doing. In chapter 2, he changes it to Lord God. Lord God. Hebrew would be Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. In the first week of the series on April 30th, we talked about the name of God in chapter 1. We talked about Elohim. Elohim indicates that God is the majestic ruler. And under such a name, we have the idea of omnipotence or creative and governing power. For those of you filling in the notes, I'll try not to go very fast because I have about 40 notes for you to take in two minutes. You think I'm kidding. It indicates that the majestic ruler and the idea of omnipotence, creative and governing power. Elohim is a plural word we get the first glimpse of the Holy Trinity when it says, and God, or Elohim, the, the plural, created the heavens and the earth. Later on, he's going to say, let us make man in our own image. Who's he talking to when he says, let us? He wasn't talking to the angels. He was talking to himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Elohim. That indicates his omnipotence, his creative power, to create, that, that he is more than just, even though he's one God, he's three persons. The next word in Yahweh, the I am that I am, the self-existent one, the one who always was and is and will be. Yahweh, or you've probably heard it if you're growing up in church, Jehovah, but in recent years they've decided... In, in the Hebrew, there was no vowels, and so now they've put a, they've changed the vowels and even the consonants, and Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God who relates to and redeems his people. Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God who relates to and redeems his people. Over and over, about 20 times in the second chapter, in the third chapter, Moses uses the word Lord God. 
Yahweh Elohim, a declaration that God is the creator and he is the covenant redeemer. It is the name that reminds us that God is a powerful creator of everything, but he's also a very personal God, that he wants to be in intimate relationship with you and me. When we read Lord God, here's some thoughts to think about. He's powerful and personal. Powerful and personal. He's the creator who makes and the covenant maker who keeps his promises. He's the creator who makes and the covenant maker who keeps his promises. Do you remember when Moses discovered that God's name was I am that I am? At the burning bush. When God comes and said, I heard my people praying, and I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when he gets there, or, or Moses said, well, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, tell him that I am that I am, the self-existent one. Tell the children of Israel, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am, has come to deliver you and to be your God, and you'll be my people. He came with power to deliver them, but he also came with power to dwell with them. You remember when they went through the wilderness, they built that tabernacle and the presence of God came. You remember how they were guided through the wilderness? The cloud and the pillar of fire was the presence of God. He had the power to open the Red Sea, but he wanted to be close to them. The God who's powerful and personal the God who makes everything, the God who keeps his promises. Because he told Abraham, I'm going to bring those people back. He's the one who's holy yet tender-hearted. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God is holy, but he's tender-hearted. We have to be careful that when we start feeling really holy and righteous, that we don't become hard-hearted toward other people and critical. I'm glad God doesn't. I mean, he could criticize every one of us every day. But he's tender-hearted, and in his holiness, which puts me to the next one, he's mighty, but yet he's merciful. He's mighty, but he's merciful. I'm so thankful that God is a God of mercy and grace. The King James, there's a psalm that every other verse says, and his mercy endures forever. And his mercy, mercy, that's not getting what you deserve. Where would we be if we got what we deserve from God? We wouldn't be. He is imminent, and intimate. And I don't think I had a blank there. I think I gave you some a break and I filled in some of them for you. Imminent and intimate. All powerful. He fills all heaven. In fact, the Bible says heavens cannot contain him. And yet, Jesus said, The Father and I will come and make 
our dwelling place in you. That gives me chills. The God who holds it all together walks with me and talks with me. He's sovereign and he's Savior. He's sovereign and he's Savior. Sovereign, there's nobody that can ascend to the throne of God and throw him off. He doesn't need any input from anybody. He knows everything. All-powerful. And the all-powerful God who knows everything, holds everything together, became our Savior. He came to be one of us in order to save us from our sin. Yahweh Elohim. He's majestic, and I can say he's mine. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sits on the throne of heaven, and yet I can say he is my God. He's my Lord. I can say I am my beloved's. He is mine, and his banner over me is love. The Lord God. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Verses 5 through 7 are one long sentence. And Moses is giving us a flashback to day 6 when God created the animals, and the creatures that crawl and walk and all of that. And then he created man. In those verses, there's a series of no's. There was no bush, no small plants, no rain. And there was no man to work the ground. No bush, no small plant, no rain, and no man to work the ground. The untended creation needed man to rule and subdue it. The untended creation needed man to rule and subdue it. When God made this earth, he made it for us to inhabit and to have dominion over with him. God put Adam in the garden that he created to till the soil and to work it. There's a story told of a retired man living in a city who got tired of looking at an ugly lot on his daily walks, and he decided to do something about it. He found the owner and asked for permission to plant some flowers and do a little landscaping on that empty lot, and he was given permission. It took him days to haul away all the trash that people had been dumping in there, and even longer to prepare the soil to plant something in it. But the next year, I mean, the, that lot was aglow with life and beauty, and all the neighbors took notice. He was working in it one day when a stranger came through the neighborhood and said to the man, God has certainly given you a beautiful piece of property. As he was admiring the flowers and the shrubbery and everything he'd done. Yes, he has, replied the gardener, but you should have seen it when he had it to himself. God created man to work and steward creation. God created man to work and steward creation. Now, I know that many people think work 
is a result of the curse. God put Adam to work before the fall. Before the fall, he was told, I want you to work in this garden. Work is not a curse, nor is it a curse word. It did become cursed in the, because it be, it, God said to Adam, now it'll, it'll be, you have to work by sweat, it'll be toil, it'll be harder. But God intended, part of the image of God in us is to work. I know that this book says, and I know where it says it, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, to the effect that God created before time good works for you and I to do and to walk in them. He created us to work. I mean, when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed that great prayer in John 17. The first part of that prayer, I don't know, second or third verse of that prayer, he said something to this effect, Father, I have completed the work you gave me to do. Do you know that someday that you will stand before the Father in heaven and give account for the work that you have done or did not do that he placed you on this planet to do? We'll all give an account be rewarded for the works that we've done. God's intention is that we work and bring honor and glory to Him, that people see His goodness through us and He is on and given honor. His intention is that whatever we do in word and in deed is to the glory of God. We should see our work as worship. We should see our work as worship. Martin Luther said, The farmer shoveling manure, the maid milking the cows, can worship God through their work as much as the minister can preaching. He went on to say, There's a sense of sacred in your vocation because you and I were created and called to serve, not just to be served. You and I were made to worship through work as we serve others. We've created to work. And my father from the grave says, Amen, Amen, and Amen. Created to work. Genesis 2, 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Chapter 1, we read that God created men, male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, Moses backs up to that story to explain a little bit more about how God did that. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man. He formed the man. The use of the word form is indicative of this truth. The act of creating man was by careful design. The act of creating man was by careful design design. When I clicked on that word in my Bible study program and took me to the concordance and gives me the Hebrew definition of that word, it has the connotation of a potter squeezing, that's the word it used, or shaping the clay 
into something that he has in his mind. Humanity is not an afterthought in creation. Humanity is not the result of some evolutionary process where some creature suddenly becomes a human. Man is the result of God's intentionality. Man is the result of God with his hand forming the human body. I have often wondered what his hand looks like because the Bible says God is spirit, but God also talks many times about, the, the Bible talks about God's hand. And I remember preaching years ago, I might have preached it two or three times in the last 50 years, about the hand of God. The hand of God formed the human body. As we read about God creating the birds, and the sea creatures on the third day. The fourth day. Fourth day. Fifth day. The animals and all of that stuff. How did God create those critters? And God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was. But when it came to creating mankind, God got real close and personal. In case you didn't know this, we came from dust. We came from dust. That's why when you go to the cemetery for a graveside service, the preacher says, from dust to dust, to ashes to ashes, quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3 of Genesis tells us this very same thing, that you came from dust, and to dust you'll return. If we're reading the Hebrew language instead of the English, we would see that God formed the man, or Ha-Adam, from the dust of the ground, Ha-Adama. In that word Adama, dust or ground, is the name Adam, or human. And so, I mean, it's right in your name, or right in the name of humanity. We're just dust. John Calvin looked at this verse and preached something like this. He said, The body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense, to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not learn here humility. His words, not mine. End of quote, okay? We are dust. We were created from dust, we'll return to dust. That should keep us humble. One pastor made this observation. We would do well to remember that in our dealings with each other. No one is made from super dust or diamond dust. We're all made from the hunk of dirt. We should not be surprised when we act like clods. That's all we were in the first place. I love that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the Almighty God from common dirt, the dust of the ground. And then it said God breathed. God breathed. 
The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. What, what a picture that comes to my mind. God, who spoke everything into existence, stoops down on his knees on the ground, takes some dirt. He had to take water to make the dirt stick together. I don't know if he used the same water that Jesus did when Jesus healed the blind men. Remember how he did? He spit, made mud. I bet God could spit a pretty good round of money, or water, you know. But he formed that man. Body, legs, arms, fingers, face, head, ears, all of that. And then he tipped that head back, put his face, God's mouth over the nostrils of that hunk of clay, and he breathed. He breathed the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. The breath of life. It was more than oxygen. It was the breath of life. We're talking up close and personal. Up close and personal. It's another proof to me that we did not evolve from some other source or species. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. For five and a half days, he used his mouth to speak things that were not from nothing into existence. But when it came to forming man in his own image, God got face to face with a lump of dust the God who created innumerable galaxies. It was His breath that gave life to that thing that He'd formed with His hands. He came this close to creation. I believe it was an impartation of the nature of God Himself at a certain level that says we were created in God's image as we became a living soul, a living spirit. I think I said it a week or two ago. What we need today is a fresh puff of the breath of God into our souls. That's the picture I get when I read the prophet Ezekiel who wrote during the time of of Judah being captivity in Babylon. God told them they're going to be there for 70 years, but there's going to be a remnant return, and there's going to be a restoration of worship in the temple, and God coming back to the city of Jerusalem in His presence. But one of the visions, Ezekiel, God gave him several of them. One of them is in, in chapter 37. And God takes Ezekiel to a valley, and as he looked at this valley, it's full of dry bones skeletons of people deceased. And God asked him, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel knew it was a 
trick question. So he said, Lord, you know, and only you know. Well, Ezekiel, God said, I want you to prophesy over these bones. So verse 7 of chapter 37 says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I prayed that God would breathe again across this nation. So I'm reading this right now, and Acts chapter 2 comes to mind, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit sat on them. 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ that day. Oh God, do it again. Do it again. You know that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Book Ephesians tells us. But somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit breathed on you. And you were made alive in Jesus Christ by putting your faith in Him. Oh, Lord, breathe on us. Breathe on us anew and afresh. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go. God placed Adam in the garden. God placed Adam in the garden. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. God came and got dirty. He, he came and planted the garden. He spoke other things into existence, but after the... Now he's, he comes and he plants the garden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. There's some significance in that word put. God puts us in the place where we can live out our divine purposes to be and to do what God has created us to do. The neighborhood you're in, you're there right now because I believe God wants you there to do the work He's created you to do. The vocation you have right now, I think you're there because God put you there. God placed you where you could fulfill your God-given purpose in life. The places that you shop, that's where God wants to use you. God placed him in the garden. It was a place for Adam to thrive in. It was a place for him to thrive in. 
Verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Every tree pleasant to find food on. Verse 10 said, A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gohan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. There is an incredible amount of speculation as to where the Garden of Eden was geographically. One man even thinks that he's proved that it was on the North Pole. Four rivers are named. Two of these rivers, nobody knows where they were. We know about the Tigris and the Euph Euphrates. They're rivers that are still today. But what we don't know is if those two rivers are still flowing in the same riverbed that they were when the Garden of Eden was here because in chapter 6 and 7 there's a cataclysmic event that takes place in the world where the world is covered with water for a year. Both poles were probably glaciers miles deep and there's lots of things that took place in rearranging things. It is my personal opinion that God lifted that garden of paradise. I'll tell you where in a minute. <laughs> the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew meaning of Eden is delight or pleasure. It's a place of delight or pleasure. The sound of Eden suggests by its name that it was luxuriant. Verdant, luscious trees were the signature. Out of the ground, God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for God. It was an extravagant place, paradise. All of that stuff, and God was there too. Naked Adam lacked nothing. We don't get to clothe him until the third chapter. He's there in the presence of God, and everything that's there for him to eat at whatever he wants, whenever he wants, as much as he wants. God walks with him. God speaks with him. They belong to one another. Paradise it was. But Adam's incredible position did bring with it a singular responsibility. A singular responsibility. There were two trees. Last half of verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, some scholars want to put them side by side. I don't know if they were side by side or not, but they were both in the middle of the garden. And through those two trees, the destiny of mankind was determined. Life was at the center of the garden. Eating fruit from the tree of life would result in continued life. Remember when Adam fell, when he sinned, 
God said you can't stay here lest you reach out a hand and take of the tree of life and eat it also and live forever. But I want you to know what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. Or if you get to be one like my mom and dad and Tammy and all kinds of people who've gone on. Revelations 3 Revelation, or Revelation 2 and Revelation 22, 2, Revelation 22, 14, Revelation 22, 19, they all speak of the same thing. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God lifted the tree of life, planted it in heaven, wherever heaven is. And one of the first fruits we get to eat is the tree of life. And we will never, ever, 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 ever ever contemplated forever. We'll never die. Adam's responsibility was made clear by the commandment of God himself. Adam's responsibility was made clear by the commandment of God himself. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He had all of these trees to eat from except one. That word put that we talked about earlier, it also has the connotation that it suggests rest, a place of rest, that God put him in a place where life would be peaceful, life would be restful. Tending the garden, caring for it was an act of rest. I want to suggest to you the chapter, or verses 15, 16, 17, it was the first covenant that God made with man. The first covenant. God made a covenant with Adam. A binding agreement. It had two parts. The first part, God's word to him was, was the first word was permissive. It was permission. God said, you may eat, surely eat of every tree of the garden. He was, partake, he was given the privilege to partake of anything that he wanted out there to his heart's content. It doesn't even say that God said, don't eat of the tree of life at this point in time. This lavish, extravagant abundance, it was there for him. Everything that he needed to meet every one of his physical needs. But God's permission was paired with his prohibition. God gave him a don't. God said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. To eat, to disobey, and to eat from that tree was bring sure death. So what was the temptation in light of there's just one tree we can't eat, and we've got all these trees all around us. We can eat every one of them. So what's the temptation that caused them to eat of the forbidden tree? Somebody just said, because God said not to. I mean, 
Carl Sandberg said, why do kids put beans in their ears when the one thing we told the kids not to do was put beans in their ears? The temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to the Word of God. It was to seek wisdom without reference to... The, Satan, the serpent came and deceived Eve and said, if you eat of that tree of knowledge, good and evil, you will be like God. In other words, you won't need to know what God says because you'll be able to do whatever you want. It was an act of moral autonomy. Moral autonomy. Deciding what's right without reference to God's revealed will. If you read the book of Judges, you will see moral autonomy over and over. It says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's the temptation of the tree. This story is confirmed in Ezekiel chapter 28, and as uh, Ezekiel is talking about it, the king of Tyre, who was expelled from Edom for his pride and claiming that his heart was like the heart of God. And I haven't decided whether it's an actual king of Tyre or whether this is a picture of Satan himself. But here's what it says in verse 6 of Ezekiel 28. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, and then he goes on, and, and we're jumping down to verse 15 for time's sake, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as prof a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Your corrupt you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they sought it outside of the word and the will of God. They usurped God's role in determining what is right and wrong. Remember, uh, it's down the road a couple messages, but remember when God comes, Adam, where are you? I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? They circumvented God when they ate of that tree. So we get here the very heart of original sin. It was a side, to sidestep God and His Word in order to become wise. Our culture would tell you, you can determine your own destiny. If it feels good to you, go ahead and do it. You'll hear people say, well, that might be right for you, but it's not right for me. This is what's right for me. And what they're trying to say is, I'm in charge of my morality. I'm in charge of deciding what's right and wrong. Why do we have such crazy laws? 
I won't get into that. That's a whole nother day. <laughs> Moral autonomy brings death. Moral autonomy brings death. By special request, I sang at the funeral of a very well-known judge for Cowlitz County many years ago. And he had requested, I did it my way. Unfortunately, he did. That won't get you to heaven. That's not a great song to have at the end of your life. I did it my way. It'll bring death. Proverbs 14.2 said, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And in case you didn't get it on the 14th day of Proverbs, when you get to the 16th day of Proverbs in the 25th verse, it says the very same thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In contrast to that, the second Adam, you know how he lived? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus lived every second of his life in radical dependence on God's word. He lived every second of his life in radical dependence on God's word. He believed the bare word of God. First Adam decided to be, I'm going to do it my way. He willfully disregarded God's revealed will and wisdom. I happen to think there was a sign on the tree. Do not eat. Trespassers will be prosecuted. He willfully did it. He did not attain the knowledge of good and evil the way that God intended, so it killed him because he got wisdom his way. So it is with us. What we do with the Word of God is everything. What we do with the Word of God is everything. You can't just be a hearer, but we must be a doer. Imagine just for a moment you don't know how the story ends. And I know everybody knows how the Adam's story ends. But just think, he could have partaken of any other there's no command that I see that he could not eat of the tree of life before he ate of the tree of good knowledge but he decided to seek wisdom from that tree apart from God's will and timing and word and death came the great temptation for all of us today is to establish our wisdom apart from God's word 
This is so intensified in our postmodernistic world, our secular world. Our culture telling you that you have your rights. Whatever. And we could go down that road a long ways. It's all about you. As fallen human beings, men and women, our only hope is to put our trust in the Word of God. The choice remains. Am I going to partake of the tree of life, which is Jesus himself, the tree of knowledge and good and evil on my own? We know how Adam's story ends, but how does your story end? Never forget what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and Deuteronomy 8.3 when he was being tempted by Satan to turn rocks into bread. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Sermon on the Mount, the longest narration and one message that we have for Jesus, if that was one message as he's teaching the people on the side of the hill. And when he gets to the Closing point of the message, chapter 7. It begins this way in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And my understanding is the people there would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Israel is a very rocky country. When my parents came back from Israel with pictures of all the places they'd been, everywhere they went there was rocks. The places where there's sand that would be an easy place to build a building. But it was like, when we lived in Southern California, um, down in Los Angeles, we lived in Palmdale, and from Palmdale all the way down to um, Los Angeles, there was this concrete river. And much of that river, most of the time, was just concrete. Nothing in it. But you know what happened when it rained? All the other concrete couldn't absorb the water. And those concrete rivers become raging. I mean, you could go rafting on the rapids. And that was what Jesus was talking about in Israel. They, they would make their, in a sandy riverbed, because, man, we don't have to dig anything. But when the floods came, he said, if you do not do the word, 
If you, if you hear these words and you do not, you're like the foolish man who builds it there. And when the floods came, the runs, your house, your life, everything is going to be washed away and great will be the fall of it. Have you ever wondered, God, why did you put those two trees in the middle of the garden? Why didn't you keep them in heaven and, and just wait till we all get there? Why did you put them there? Anybody worry about that? Think about that? One. Okay. I guess we're the only two people. Who there could be a number of reasons, but here's the reason I, that I think is number one. God wants men and women to love him freely and willingly. Not like program robots. God created humans to have a relationship of reciprocating love. God wants us to obey him because we love him. I'm a bit skeptical about all the artificial intelligence stuff being put into our culture for several reasons. When I tried to call CenturyLink the other day and 15 minutes into it, I had still not been able to find a human being to speak to. The lack of... We do our church banking at one bank, and I do have one small account there. And our personal, we've been in the credit union for 35 years. The credit union is moving to this AI thing, and they want you, they'll pay you five bucks to use the AI instead of a real person. And it's a little irritating to me. I love going to the bank where we do the church banking because every teller in there knows us by name. And the dog, when he goes through the drive-thru and gets the treat. They talk to me. Every one of them expressed their condolences to me when they read that my mother had passed away. That personal connection That's why God put that there. It's because he needed to give man a choice. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. Love is about relationship. God gave him, God took a risk. And we know that God knew it was going to fail. That's because the plan of salvation was before it all happened. God took a risk when he created you and me with a free will. But it's the only way that we learn, the only way that we would learn that freedom flows from obedience. Freedom does not flow from doing your own thing. To really be free. To really be free. You must obey. The lie of the serpent was freedom comes from doing what you want to do. Freedom comes from being the master of your own destiny. How many of you thought when you were 18, I can't wait to be out and be free? How many discovered that your freedom was totally lost? Now you had responsibilities. 
I close with three points. Every few years, I throw these points out there. Doing my own thing is very bad for me. Doing my own thing is very bad for me. Being the master of my own destiny will lead me down a road that leads to death. However, doing God's thing is very good for me. Doing God's thing, do you know that God knows you, God loves you, and God wants to prosper you and bless you and give you a future? I know that because the Bible says so. I'm not telling you everything that will happen to you in life is good, but I will tell you this, God promised that he'll cause everything to work together for your good. Doing God's thing is very good for me. And number three, God has a plan, and it works. God has a plan, and it works. I want you to stand. We're going to sing a chorus that we've sang hundreds of times here over the years. But the chorus today is really relevant. The verses are great, but the chorus is really relevant. 